Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here's your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, testing, exercises, resilience, anything that can help you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Today, you may recognize my guest because he's returning again. I think, uh, Ray, this is what, the second or third time yeah. that I've had you now? So well, I'm glad to have you back. Ray Holloman, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, and today we've got an interesting topic, something a little different. Uh, are your plans and exercises thinking about equity and inclusion? So uh, that's a different uh, topic. And I think you uh, presented this recently, didn't you? Yeah, I presented it at DRJ Fall uh, 2023. And you stopped by our live broadcast too, which was uh, really nice. So I was glad to uh, yeah. glad to see you again. Actually, you've appeared on... Uh, Almost all of our live broadcasts now. <laughs> James and I show up at a conference. You're there. <laughs> yeah, I just show up in the background. I'm like, hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. I'm glad to have you here. Um, yeah. Let's jump right into this because um, you know this is such an interesting topic. Uh, in exercising, what do you mean by equity and inclusion? Yeah, so I really uh, got to thinking about you know how we do testing and we really think about testing and exercising in this like one way. And if people, I feel like we're always trying to figure out ways to exclude parts and parameters of our test scenarios to make it easier on us. But in that sometimes what I feel like we find is that we actually aren't making it equitable because we are not practicing what we're saying we're going to do in our plans. Like I've been a part of organizations where, you know, maybe the person in the wheelchair, we're like, don't worry about evacuating. This is just a drill. But it's like that person should still have to evacuate the building because if we don't practice how we do it, then we aren't ensuring that we know how. And then that inclusion piece comes in to making sure that people that may have some type of difference are they being included in the process of what we're thinking about, how we do our testing, how we do our exercises, what makes the most sense for them, and asking them, you know, a person that may be in a wheelchair, are we asking them, hey, what's the best way to evacuate the building versus making an assumption of what we think may be the best way to evacuate them out of the building? So it's really trying to get more people into the process and people that may be different, um, have different abilities, you know, may have a physical disability, anything like that, and being able to really include them in the process, because at the end of the day, business continuity and disaster recovery is really about the people in our businesses and our organizations. So how are we ensuring that everyone is able to have a, you know, a place in this kind of ecosystem of BC and disaster recovery? 
I, I find that interesting that um, you, you, the point you just made, we find ways to make our testing easier. Mm-hmm. It's like, we let's, let's trim off that. Let's trim off this. You know, I, and I find that rather interesting just so that we can say we tested it and or exercised it and give us ourselves a pat on the back because we really didn't face the challenges. Exactly. A lot of times I feel like, you know, it's like we know there's going to be a challenge or it may be difficult or they're just like, we don't have enough time to go down that scenario. We'll do it next time. Well, next time, you know, it keeps just rolling mm-hmm. on down. And so we just never get to that point where we actually do it because some new project comes up. But if we start just holistically incorporating that into our process, then we don't have to worry about the next time because there, it's already there. It's already baked in. We took the couple of hours that it may have need to have those those conversations, implemented it, and now that just becomes a part of our standard testing. And we're really not taking into account how our employees feel if they're in a wheelchair or they're in a cast, you know, or whatever the case may be, you know, how, how does, how do, I I, want to find the right way of saying it, but if we're excluding them all the time, how do, how's, how's that making them feel? Right. Exactly. It's like, it's like, it makes them feel like they're not a part of the organization because it's like, oh, I'm excluded because I'm too complicated of a scenario when it could be just a 10 minute conversation to figure out maybe we need to make sure that like a floor captain or somebody is assigned to ensure that they make it down the stairwell safely or whatever that evacuation procedure may need to be for that employee. But by like not including them, we don't know what what they may need. And so then that just becomes a you know, a system of harming that employee because they're like, well, I feel like I'm not important. I'm not involved. Everybody else evacuates the building for the fire drill, but I'm still sitting here on the third floor. Like, why am I not a part of it? Why am I seen as too complicated to try to figure out what my needs are to try to make sure that I can evacuate safely just because I can't evacuate down the stairwell myself? And I I can't help but think that if someone is feeling excluded, not part of the organization, and you're not exercising this and really taking into their, uh, taking into account their feelings and their input, that wouldn't that hinder morale or productivity as well? Like it's got a bigger impact. Yeah, it's got a huge impact because if you think about, we're trying to always make sure that like people feel like they belong in these organizations, but that just kind of makes them feel like maybe this isn't the right organization for me. I don't feel like I belong. And so then they may leave the company and that's an opportunity cost of now you've got to find somebody to replace them, you know, all the recruiting and stuff that goes into replacing an employee when it could have been like a 20, 30 minute conversation, figuring out what that employee actually needs and then meeting that need. Cause it's one thing to just ask, but then we also have to meet that need and figure out. And it's like, that's what we should be doing. We're about taking care of our people. This is a part of taking care of people, no matter how they come into the organization. It's kind of like the organization will do its utmost to recruit people uh, of you know different needs and things. But then when it comes to exercising and taking that extra step, it's too much of an effort. Exactly. I couldn't, uh, I, I don't know, how. I can't remember how long you've been in business continuity, and I know it's been a while, or, or resilience, but I know it's been a few years, shall we say. Yeah. Um, I remember the days after uh, 9-11, where we did have those exercises, 
with wheel uh, people in wheelchairs or people that had uh, you know in a cast or something or whatever the case may be and we had how do we bring them down the stairs who carries them um which stairwell uh you know where they are in the building and who designated people to help them or if they couldn't go down uh, a designated area where they could go to to protect themselves from fire or smoke or something like that so having gone through that what changed how how come we forgot I think we just kind of got away from it. I think other things became more important. I think we started seeing more active shooter drills. And so Mm -hmm. I think just the focus may have changed. I think there are probably organizations that are still doing those types of things, especially when they are probably in high rise buildings and things like that. Um, but I think like as organizations kind of spread out, those are just like those type of safety drills. They may get may get forgotten because you may be in a lease building for a couple of years and then you may move somewhere else. I know at one company that I was at in three years, I was in three different buildings. And so, you know, like you may just those type of things just get lost in the, you know, thinking about those type of things. I think most organizations, they probably have it on a checklist somewhere, but Mm -hmm. when there's other priorities that come in, it just keeps continuing getting pushed down that list. But it's something that person in wheelchair needs to know where they need to go in the building. Um, But I think the other piece is then also asking that person, what do they need? Maybe they're not in a wheelchair. Uh, Maybe they are vision impaired. Maybe they are uh, hard of hearing, deaf. What do those employees need? Because that may be different. And it's just like asking them if they're willing to identify themselves. Um, you know, some disabilities are more visible than others. But like, what is helpful for you? Like, like for somebody that may be blind or visually impaired, is it better for someone to hold on to you and lead you out? Or is it better for somebody to be in front of you and be behind you as you're going down the stairwell? asking those types of questions so the employee feels included in their own safety and the organization just hasn't made an assumption that somebody's going to come take you by the arm and take you down the stairs because that means that person is losing their independence in that moment when you know they should be able to be able to say hey this is what i need organization can you meet that yes or no and if you can't then we have to figure out okay what are we going to do to mitigate that so how do we get a change in thinking with that? Because you you brought up a, a you know a multiple scenarios: hard hard of hearing, you know, potential blind. They don't have to be in a wheelchair. It doesn't have to be visual. Something that you see as a disability. So how do you get people to start changing that thinking when it comes to these exercises, so that we're not just exercising? And let's face it, we exercise a continuity plan or how to rebuild a server. It'll get mm-hmm. an application up and running. So how do you get people to change their thinking to think beyond that? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just like as we, you know, thinking about a lot of organizations are starting to do these equity and inclusion programs and they talk a really good talk, but like how are we making sure that we're implementing that into like all phases of our work? So us as like resiliency professionals, we have to start thinking about, okay, what are organizations inside of our companies that we can partner with? Is it partnering with HR to see 
what is, you know, who has self-identified as maybe having a disability um, or has asked for some type of accommodations. I know in some countries that could get um, particularly hard to do, but anybody that's self-identified and is willing to come up, how do we start asking them, hey, we want to do better. We want to make sure that we're being inclusive of you, making sure that you feel that you still have your own independence in these types of scenarios. What are the things that help you? What can we do as, you know, uh, a resiliency part of the company for that employee to say, hey, we're going to provide you. You said that you need somebody in front of you, behind you when we have a fire drill. Okay, here's going to be a couple of people that are in your department that and there'll be some alternates because not everybody's in the office every single day. But here's the people that should be able to like if something happens, they will be responsible for, you know, ensuring that you can make it down the stairwell safely, um, making sure that you know that the fire alarm is going off. If you're hearing impaired, um, somebody can come grab you because that person may just not know what's going on. Or even um, how how to notify them properly. Exactly. Not just showing up and grabbing them, you know, like exactly on, you know, what's going on. Exactly. Being able to say, like, you know, when X person shows up at your desk, hey, this is time we need to evacuate the building or we need to move to a safe place. Something something we face here a lot in Tennessee are tornadoes. Um, so we have to shelter in place a lot. So just being able to explain to that person very quickly and efficiently, but not taking away their agency of being able to do something themselves. Uh, so I think it's just starting a lot of those conversations because I think that we have um you know, gotten some organizations have gotten away from doing it, especially with, you know, through the pandemic and a lot of people working remotely. Have we practiced those things? Have we brought in new employees that may not be familiar? Um, but that's working with probably your HR, if you have a DEI department, and figuring out how do we start ensuring that, you know, our employees know how to evacuate this building safely and understanding that this is going to continue to evolve. This isn't just what one person may need may not be the same as the next person. And so understanding that we're going to have to be able to evolve and ebb and flow as this move. And as people come in and out of the company to say, okay, we may need to change this because this worked for the last person that we had that was hard of hearing, but this person wants something slightly different and how can we accommodate them? You think sometimes, uh, and I was just thinking this as you were you were talking, um, that fear sometimes stops people from approaching others and asking for help because we hear we do hear stories, we see it on social media. Um, you know, Alex is offended because Ray asked him a question about why he wears glasses or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, because I freaked out on you, you don't want to ask anything uh, of others. You know, even though you're reaching out because you want to learn something to help and be a part of, you know, what Alex needs. And, you know, if it's someone that's hearing impaired or visually impaired or in a wheelchair, fear sometimes kicks in because they're afraid. If I ask, they're going to get mad at me because I'm asking because they're, they, you know, you start telling yourself different kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. So does fear sometimes, do you think, kick in and why some organizations, I don't want to say forget to address, but maybe just kind of shy away a little bit. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely some fear there because it's the fear of saying the wrong thing is the fear of doing the wrong thing. And I think how, you know, we kind of fix that is saying that like going to the person's like in a way of like, hey, I want to make sure that we are serving you the best way that we can in this organization. What are your needs? Instead of making an assumption of, okay, do you need this, this, or this? Be like, do you have any needs? Because a person may say, hey, I don't need anything at all. And that's fine. Um, and some of that may be the only people that you may be able to talk to are the people that are willing to you know, disclose this to their HR and DE&I departments. And so that's why I say partnering with them, because they will know, you know, how to go about it in a way that, you know, is going to give the person their most agency back. But that's really what this is about, is giving them their agency and bringing them to the table and letting them be a part of the conversation. Uh, one of the other things that I talked about in my presentation was just about the growth of neurodiverse people in the workplace. Every person is different. And so it's like, their needs may be different, but how do we bring that into an exercise structure where people may be doing stuff differently, but all towards the same goal? And so it's really getting through of like, not indiv individualizing for everybody or everything, but understanding that people may need things in different formats and how do we get it to them? Because I think that's really uh, an important piece of this is just really trying to meet people where they're at to make sure that they stay safe. I think that's a, a perfect little quote there. Meet them where they're at, you know, rather than me assuming or or trying to push my viewpoint or perceptions on others, you know, uh, when it comes to exercising, anything could happen because somebody who is uh, uh, maybe hard of hearing, and I have worked with someone who was, and they were a key subject matter expert. And you had to take into account. And we needed to if we really wanted to be successful in our exercises. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe sometimes people forget that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's been a big thing is that like you may have a key person that you have to provide that information to them differently. It may be better and more efficient to provide it to them in writing versus trying to, you know, verbally say it out loud because they may miss stuff. And so people may have different forms. So how do we start, you know, just building that in? Uh, one of the things that I've learned this term is universal design. So really, how do we start making our exercises um, and doing our testing in this way of like universally being inclusive of people with differences, um, you know, from the start, because then we don't have to go back and try to retrofit it. Um, right. You're seeing that a lot in uh, education for all the different people's types of learning styles. So a teacher may say something verbally, but they'll also have it up on the screen for the people that like to read the information doing that type of design inside of our exercises means that we'll be able to catch a water wider breadth of people without really having to do anything different because we are already thinking about them from the beginning of our design phase of how we build our plans, how we exercise them, who's in the room, all of that. You mentioned the, uh, you know, having a screen there as well, um, because depending on a topic, sometimes I'm visual. I need mm -hmm. a visual to understand it. And other times 
I don't need the visual. I can understand the the uh, audio, to, you mm-hmm. know, the uh, auditory aspect of it, and I don't need the picture. If you're going to be inclusive of others, you really have to be cognizant of using both and taking that a step further. Exactly. And so that's really what it's starting to think about. It's like, how are we ensuring that we're being inclusive of everybody? Because it's like not only having the visual, the audio, all right, you know, if it's something that can be recorded, are we recording? Because somebody may not be able to process as fast as someone else what they're hearing. And so maybe they want to go back and take those notes. Um, And that's a place where I really feel like AI is really starting to come into play because a lot of times what you're seeing now, I think in, I saw in PowerPoint here recently, it'll do live closed captioning for you inside of your presentation. So for people that may be hard of hearing, you know, we used to like think about when we go into these big conference rooms and different things like that, and somebody may be up at the front speaking, now that person may be able to read what the person is saying in real time in a way that, you know, five or six years ago, we really didn't have that kind of real-time capacity. So thinking about all these different tools that we are coming out with and things like AI, having some of that automated, like it's none of the tools are 100%, but they're a lot better than not having it at all because then at least you have the closed captioning and then you have a transcript of what was said. And so somebody can go back and read and maybe take notes if they needed to for, you know, after actions, but just if they miss something because they just couldn't hear or understand what the person was saying up in the front. So really starting to use those tools, I think, is a way that we can start building that into the design of our plans. And using that as well is key um, going back to exercises, Mm -hmm. because in a real situation, you've got multiple people and communications going on and multiple activities. So if you can leverage some of these tools to help people that have um, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, then that's going to help them be a part of it and help part of that exercise or the actual restoration recovery response efforts, because now they really are a part of everything. Exactly. They're not having to spend, uh, I would say it's like they're not having to spend the time and energy to try to just understand because they can see it. And so then they can move forward faster. Uh, One of the things that I brought up was, you know, thinking about a lot of times we put our plans in English because it's easier for us. I work for a company where I've got people all around the world. So if it's easier for it to be in your native language, because then you don't have to do that translation, then I just need you to point out to me all of these different places and point to me in your plan where you have them. But if it's in Spanish, if it's Arabic, if it's in some other language, that's fine. I just need to be able to attest that, yeah, you have it, but now you're not spending that processing power trying to translate it into English, figuring out what it's doing, doing that, then having to respond back. I just need you to do the work. I don't need you to spend the time trying to decipher how to do the work. And if you're a large company up in Canada, your plans have to be in English and French. Okay. You know, um, you know, especially the big like banks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Government agencies. Yeah. They all, it's all uh, bilingual. You know, it has to be French and English, you know, yeah. because there are people that speak French all across the country. Same mm-hmm. with, same with English. So, yeah. And so thinking through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
would you believe we have uh, less than one minute left? So <laughs> do you have a final thought or a uh, final comment you'd like to uh, say about this? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, I think equity inclusion and our testing and planning, you know, really thinking about how can we best serve our people? Because at the end of the day, that's what we're here for. We're here to make sure our people uh, get to go home safely and we're here to make sure that our processors are stored. So this only helps that and it helps us be able to do that quicker and faster. And I think we're all looking for ways to do that. And this is just another way that we could start using. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it, it it really does, in the end, could save lives. Exactly. What, what more of a reason do you need than that? Right? So true. On that note, Ray, we've come to the end of the show. I can't believe that 24 minutes went by so fast. We've yeah. come to the end of this segment, I should say, because we have another topic we're going to touch on. So yes. stay tuned. Ray, thank you so much for this topic. And for those watching and listening, we'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. How do you cultivate braver, more daring leaders? And how do you embed the value of courage in your culture? How do you take charge of your life and achieve your goals and bring about positive changes that propel you forward? On The Leader's Edge, join your hosts, Steve and Ernie, as they bring a mix of insights in personal and leadership growth that shapes your culture and the culture around you. Lean in and learn intentionally how to accelerate into your next best life. Tune into The Leader's Edge with Ernalita DeCumos and Steve Steele, Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Today, we are talking with Ray Holloman. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the resilience landscape. Where does disaster recovery and high availability fit? Ray, that's quite the... uh, topic there but isn't disaster recovery and high availability automatically mean you're resilient i that's that is the whole reason why i like love talking about this topic and so (laughs) really how we break it down is that disaster recovery you know as i've talked to most people is really thinking through you know you're having to declare you have lost your production sites 
versus where high availability really fits in is like that's your production. That's trying to ensure that's like your five nines, your service level agreements, all of these things that keep your production up and running. So they really are two parts of the resilience equation, but they are two separate parts because you can be highly available and have disaster recovery in play. And you can have disaster recovery uh, but not have necessarily high availability. And so there are two parts of this like resiliency equation that both are for some organizations, they really want to operate at the highest levels of uptimes and uh, operations. And so they're probably going to have, you know, their high availability where they're going to have very tight SLAs where they want to have as minimal downtime as possible throughout the year. But what happens if you're using an active-active solution in uh, high availability, you know, and you're replicating your database from one place to another, and that database gets corrupted? You then have to go to disaster recovery to get it back. And so that's why I try to tease out that there are two separate things, but they work conjointly with each other to ensure that you have, like, the utmost uh, availability. Because that's really a lot of times what organizations look and they're like, we're looking for you know, zero to little downtime. And I was like, well, we can solve that in multiple different ways. It's just what's going to be the best way based upon what regulations and all the things that they have to comply with, with their organization and, you know, laws and countries that they may reside in. And how much money you want to give us. Exactly. It's there's always it's always the money conversation. I'm like, <laughs> we can do all the disaster recovery that you want. We can have all the greatest things, uh, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. And that usually gets people to start being a little bit more realistic of their expectations um, when they start. Because I'll be like, you basically have to have two productions, but one's just sitting as a big insurance policy. And they're like, well, maybe we can do something different in a stead. And I was like, okay, we have conversations. And so it can be based upon what your criticality is, how important it is to you. Is the infrastructure more important to you than the data? Is the data more important to you than the infrastructure? What are the things that are important to you? And so I think it really turns into this equation to figure out how resilient do you need this application or system truly to be? Well, that's an interesting point because with high availability, yeah, um, and most organizations and customers, partners, suppliers, any amount of downtime is considered a no-no. D- doesn't matter how long that downtime is or how small it is. Um, so how does DR still stay relevant in all that? I think DR stays relevant in that, especially as we have moved into this space of um cyber attacks and ransomware because you're still going to have to know how to recover your infrastructure because yes the the opportunity cost for downtime has become you know organizations just don't want to see it at all they want you to stay available but what happens if you need to recover a region or a section you still have to have the capabilities to do that so i think dr starts shifting in a way, and you start seeing people doing more testing of, you know, their backups, how quickly can they stand something back up, thinking about disaster recovery in ways of, uh, especially as we're starting to see more infrastructure as code and containers, how quickly can you redeploy to another region um, something, because that means it's not currently existing, so you may have 
degraded service for a little bit, but how can you bring other regions online as uh, quick as possible? So I think that's where, you know, DR stays relevant because you're still going to, you may still need to practice how to do a recovery from your backups. And so that's where it stays relevant because most organizations want to ensure that they are uh, cyber, you know, cyber protected. And so that's really big space where I see a lot of DR people getting into because that's where we're having to really face, okay, how can I recover from this immutable backup that sits in, you know, this other area because we went down because of a ransomware and we don't, uh, we want to ensure that uh, they are out of our systems before we bring things back online. And so may have to put it into a clean system, verify that they're out before we stand it back up. So disaster recovery starts changing more where it's kind of a connection point into like cyber um, in ways where we're not maybe just doing straight infrastructure server recovers like we're used to in the past exercises start getting a, a little bit more creative in that way but it's a way for us to also still be very relevant because we have the skills and have been doing this for a while and so we end up partnering other parts of the organization uh, you you touch on some interesting things that i was thinking of here that dr you know we used to bring up uh, an application or a couple of applications or a server you know um, that you, you kind of mentioned but you really now have to think beyond because in your organization, one region could be down, but another one is working completely fine. Mm -hmm. And you traditionally, we used to think one data center down, we'll rebuild it. Well, now it doesn't have to be a data center that's down. It could be a region because of, well, you mentioned Tennessee. So <laughs> where you are could be because of a, a hurricane. But meanwhile, someone in Minnesota, let's say, is they're fine. So you really have to start looking at DR and high availability a little bit differently. Yeah, I think a great example of that, uh, a few years ago here in Tennessee, we had a bombing that took out the infrastructure for a big hub for one of the telecommunication companies here. And so that impacted people in nine states besides Tennessee. And so People that had prepared for that had dual carriers into their facilities, into their buildings, but a lot of people did not. And so this carrier had, uh, you know, network connectivities, people's telephones went down, our local emergency systems went down. All of these things went down because people had just been preparing for this high availability piece of it but hadn't thought about what's their redundancy, what's their plan if this, you know, had a lot of avail uh, high availability inside of that building, but outside of that building, if that whole building was taken offline, which it was, there was nothing. And so it's like, okay, what was your disaster recovery plan? Because you had people that were impacted on Christmas um, and for three days after where they may have not had cell phone service, internet at their house, um, that was a huge impact for a lot of people. And so it starts thinking about, huh, this disaster, this high availability works great until all your high availability is taken out and then you have nothing to serve your customers with. And so that's really that point of thinking through, okay, there is still a place for this, especially if you're starting to look at regionally and in these zones, like, yeah, this one zone may be out and it, I may be able to move those customers over somewhere 
but I may only have capacity to move them for there for, you know, a short period of time. I need to build that capacity back up somewhere else. So I do need to do a restore or recovery and stand that infrastructure back up because I need to be able to split the workload because I may need to, you know, shift as orders come in or orders go out. And so it's really thinking about what are all of our different plans for whatever may happen. And then you add in business continuity on that too, because uh, you may have orders coming in and orders to go out, but they're being managed in a different region now. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden their workload doubles. So what do you have in place for them? So it can have a lot of ripple effects. Mm-hmm. So how does resilience come into play with both DR and HA? Yeah. When I think about resilience, so this is like my own definition, you know, it's like, how are we ensuring that we are making sure that the organization can keep going, you know, whatever that may be, can we bounce back from a hit that we take, whether that be a high availability hit, a disaster recovery hit. And so I think that these are two parts of that entire overall resiliency umbrella. We're seeing, you know, cyber resilience and financial resilience and operational resilience. We see all of these different terms, but I think really, you know, if we look at resiliency at its core, it's like, can we come back from, you know, an outage? If we're hit, how do we come back? And so high availability hopefully means we don't see that outage, or if we do, it has a very minimal impact. Disaster recovery means the outage is bigger, but we have the processes in place to be able to bounce back from it, you know, in the timeframes that we set in our RTOs and RPOs. And so it's really saying this is how, you know, IT is helping the organization be able to um, go over a bump in the road to ensure that we can continue, you know, operations. Because I mean, like people throw out facts all the time about like outages are some of the number one reasons why businesses go out of business is because they couldn't provide their service anymore um, and they didn't have a plan for it. And so it's like, we're the parts that are planning for it, whether it be, you know, investing highly in the high availability so our customers don't see an impact, investing in disaster recovery so we can do the recoveries, investing in both, and all the other areas that we're investing in. Uh, One of the things that I, I like to talk about a lot is that our workforce has shifted so much that when I started, uh, you know, probably 14 years ago, we did downtime on paper because that was something that was still very prominent. You have people that are coming out of school now um, and going into these jobs that have never had to document. They've never had to do anything on paper like we did, like if the ticketing system went down in IT or if the uh, EHR, the electronic health record in a hospital goes down. You've got nurses that have never even seen a paper chart. (laughs) So that ability to like be able to use that as a workaround from a business continuity perspective doesn't really exist as much as it used to, because you used to have people that knew how to do those things. But a lot of a lot of those people have started to retire. They moved out of the field. So Mm -hmm. they're always expecting 100 percent uptime. And if you tell them there's going to be a downtime, they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with my patients? I'm like, you got to go back to paper. And they're like, what's that? 
You I've know, never, like, I was never there. What do I what right do I to <laughs> having to take orders if you're a manufacturing company, having to take orders on you know paper or in a spreadsheet and then upload. They're like, I'm just used to using this portal. I don't know how to calculate the sales tax for this product in an Excel document. So we, you know, that's another way where organizations we've got to think about that from this resilient space like they're relying upon our tech so that's why we've got to make sure it stays available or we can recover it quickly because that's what the employees want that's what the customers want that's what everybody wants everybody wants things to be available 100 percent of the time they don't always want to pay for it to be 100 available 100 percent of the time though yeah <laughs> yeah because it's a little crazy sometimes <laughs> so very pricey to do some of these things you touched on RTOs and RPOs, so I just I figured you know what I've got to touch on that. In in disaster with the DR and HA, uh, when it's uh, and I just had this conversation about two weeks ago with somebody. In a lack of a better term, uh, daily incidents, mm-hmm. you have your RTO that is established through incident management, and you you know. Comes from your BIA, et cetera, et cetera. And you know you have four hours to flip a server over. In a real big disaster where you mentioned your example of a bomb, well, you need people that are, have been impacted by that bomb and you haven't been able to even get a hold of them yet. So that RTO four hours that someone else is expecting is kind of blown out of the water a little bit mm. until you're able to get people together. So sometimes there's two different uh rtos one on a single event uh, or item uh level and full scale level and they're different whether you've got dr or ha in place sometimes those both can be impacted yeah i've been really uh you know as i talk to different people that i know you know been really coming out with these concepts like we've been so so long on like this one RTO and everything has to be within this one RTO and I was like I don't think that necessarily works anymore because (laughs) like if it's a strict like let's say data center outage server outage you know that's quick and easy you know we so many companies have gotten to the point where they've kind of automated a lot of that recovery it's push button it's you know push a button stand it up servers come on somewhere else but and and not to get too far into like scenario based planning, but I think we're starting to see there are these other like big buckets of disaster types that are not the norm. Um, I think of, you know, you mentioned the one about not being able to get in contact with the person going back to the bombing that happened here in Nashville. I had no clue it happened. My work had been blowing my phone up for hours asking where I was, could I hop online? And I had both internet and cell phone coverage through this one provider. So I was completely, didn't know anything had happened. It's Christmas day, I'm going on about my life. Um, And so that blew some of our RTOs out of the water because you just could not get a hold of key people. Um, Very similarly, when we start thinking about cyber incidences, you know, there's a lot of time that has to go into just investigating and seeing what happens before you can even decide, you know, have you been impacted and have you not? That may take four or five hours and you may have already blown some of your, you know, if you're just going with the traditional RTOs that 
you know, the BIA stage, you've already blown those for maybe your mission critical bucket. And so how do you how do we start reconciling that into our processes? And so one way that I have uh, I've done it so far is that like the RTOs that we have set are for like your everyday type disasters like you know hurricane comes through is going to impact our data centers we know how to move that traffic somewhere more inland that we know how to do every day how do we what do we do if you know our entire building is taken out infrastructure is taking like you know not only infrastructure that we are you know dependent upon but as an organization but people personally may be dependent upon those are those outside scenarios and so like do we assign a different RTO to those? Do we go through the process or do we just say everything is try to get it back up as soon as reasonably and safely possible to do it? Um, you know, whether that be safe because we've included that the servers are, you know, clear and they are there's no impact that that may continue to harm our organization or is that people safety that they can access the site, the things that we need to be able to restore. And so I think that's a concept that's going to come up more and more, especially as we start Ooh. thinking through resilience, uh, you know, with both HA and DR is that how do we ensure that, you know, we are set, we are setting the expectations correctly to the business because they may have an expectation that they were like, well, your RTO was four hours. And I was like, yeah, but all of Tennessee, like all of Middle Tennessee doesn't have it. You know, half of Middle Tennessee doesn't have internet right now. So all of our key people can't even log on from home on Christmas Day or they haven't even been notified yet. So it's taking us much longer to notify people. So that four-hour RTO was unrealistic because all, all of our key people don't know yet. So I think it'll be interesting to continue to see how do we evolve that conversation? Is it that, you know, we classify the disaster as like maybe, you know, a technical disaster versus like a, you know, major hazard disaster? I'm not really sure what the words would be, but yeah. I think we're getting to a point where we really are going to have to start looking at that because I think that the business will have an expectation for us to meet this four-hour RTO and certain types of events that just really is unrealistic for us to try to meet the RTO in that type time period. Yeah. So how you mentioned you know, the expectation, the understanding of resilience. How do we sell that to leadership so that we can get stronger, uh, you know, DR and HA and you know resilience levels, et cetera, et cetera? How do we sell that to leadership? Yeah, I think it's kind of, you know, how we traditionally kind of sold it is that you want to ensure that you're available for your, you know, employees, customers, whoever, like your end user, your stakeholder. We want to make sure that you are available for, with them because we know that people will switch. They will go somewhere else. If they can't buy the service from us, they will go to our competitor to get it because we were unavailable at the time because people just don't want to wait anymore. And so it starts helping the bottom line in your revenue because you're going to be available. You'll be able to accept that order. You won't have to worry about them switching and going somewhere else. So I think it's really selling it in this way of, hey, this helps the organization 
be competitive because that's what many, especially for-profit businesses are looking for. They're like, what's my competitive edge? If we think about every time that, you know, we see like a Netflix or Hulu outage, all the outrage that it gets on the (laughs) internet, you know, because people are like, I pay for a service. Am I going to get money back because you were down for four hours and I couldn't use it? You know, you stop that conversation there because people know to you to be reliable, to be available. And so they don't have to worry about it. So if something major does happen, they were like, well, all these other times when everybody else was having issues, you weren't having an issue. And so you can come up and say, hey, we had this unexpected thing and it's taking us a little bit longer. And so then it just starts building that goodwill and that reputation into people knowing that you are somebody that traditionally is there. Um, and so then they are like, okay, I understand. And, you know, I'm going to come back to you, you know, and continue to buy my product or services from you. Believe it or not, we only have two and a half minutes left. <laughs> Again, we're flying through uh, our time so would you like to share any final thoughts or comments maybe we didn't touch on when it came to um, ha and dr uh, and the resilience landscape yeah i think really you know as we start looking at how uh disaster recovery, high availability, and to resilience landscape, I think it all depends on where an organization is in their life cycle, their ecosystem. So I always try to tell, you know, if you're going to focus on one thing first, I say focus on being able to recover if something happens, because you can always bring in that availability piece as you come down the road. But if you can't even recover your items, Mm -hmm. that's going to be the harder part, because then you've got to figure out how am I going to rebuild all of this infrastructure, all of these various different things. And so I tell people to start with disaster recovery first, get your plans, get solid there, then move on to high availability. You can start bringing in those uh, type items, eliminating those single points of failure, being able to automate that detection of your failures. And then you're really starting to look at that play in that really, really resilient landscape. And so it's just getting people to kind of step through it methodically and not try to tackle everything at once. Because there's parts that you can do, you know, as you go through a disaster recovery, you can have some pieces of high availability if you architect it in certain ways with certain types of applications. So you can start getting there, but just being very methodical about how you go through and build this resilience program out. Well, a lot of times, and I'm sure you've experienced it too, is everyone just tries to do everything at once, and then it all kind of falls apart, mm-hmm. either if they're a real situation or when they try to exercise and test it. It's like, yes. wow, nothing is working. What's going on? <laughs> exactly. I'm always like, start small, and we can build from there. Like, let's not try to take it all on at once. Start with the small things that we can start accomplishing because then you're just building on top of each other versus having a very rocky foundation. And like you said, it just collapses the first time you actually put any pressure towards it. Yeah. And on that note, we've come to the end of the show. Ray, thanks so much for sharing your time and expertise with us once again. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Oh, more than uh, more than happy. I'm sure there's going to be a fourth time. and we'll probably see you at another conference when we do a live broadcast too (laughs) for sure great well thanks again ray really appreciate having you back and chatting with you once again and everyone watching and listening stay prepared everybody thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected 
Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.